Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording here from my bedroom recording studio in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, here in Treaty 6 territory. And on the phone, on the phone joining me is a friend of the pod, a Jeremy Appel, down in Medicine Hat, down in Treaty 7. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, DK? <laughs> hey, Jer. So we've got you on. This is your second time on the pod. So at some point, I think on the third try, you get like a, a challenge coin or something silly like that. But it's your second time on the pod. You know, we've, we've got you on to chat about a few things. Um, you know, we just recently hired you to write an investigative piece for the Progress Report that um, you know, really interesting, like has gotten shared a lot and has kind of really has gotten people talking online. But there's a bunch of other things I want to chat about, too. Uh, about the media landscape in Alberta, about the sprawl, some fucked up shit that happened with the sprawl over the weekend, as well as like where the progress report fits into the Alberta media landscape. But let's let's get into the story that you wrote for the progress report. It it, it came out yesterday morning. Um, you know that the headline is is pretty evocative. You know how to get away with dumping your orphan wells on the public. Um, why don't you uh, like walk the audience through the story and, and and just so they're aware of it if they haven't read it? We'll obviously have it in the show notes, but but what's the kind of Cole's notes? I had forgotten that came out yesterday because every day um, is the same. But um, in terms of the story, uh, it starts with a company called Manitoc Energy, which goes bankrupt in 2018 i believe i don't have the story right in front of me but yeah you're right like not that long ago and at the time of its going bankrupt it has hundreds of orphans well orphan wells facilities and pipelines that are left for the orphan well association which is supposed to be funded by industry but it's increasingly becoming funded by the public, uh, which is an interesting contrast between everything else in Alberta. (laughs) Yes. Um, But in any event, he goes bankrupt. And then a new company called Persist Oil and Gas, I believe, purchases most of the assets of Manitoc and it happens to be owned by the same person. It's the, it's, it's, it's the same CEO. It's this dude, uh, mass or Massimo Jeremiah, Jeremiah. I don't know how you pronounce it, but yeah. Um, well, as a guy named Jeremy, I assume it's pronounced Jeremiah, but <laughs> that's just my personal bias. So it's owned by the same guy. And they have the agreement between them through their uh, receivership. When you go, a company goes bankrupt, it goes into a receivership with a trustee, and then they sell off all the remaining assets that um, they can pay off to creditors. And the agreement, which needs to be approved by the Alberta energy regulator was amended twice first to like add and remove a bunch of uh, projects like throughout rural Alberta. And then again, to specifically remove um, uh, some pipelines, wells and facilities from um, the the uh, the NISCU uh, pipelines project, which is based in Foothills County. So, what's happening here is uh, this individual is able to keep his good assets and start afresh while the bad assets that were no longer profitable get picked up by the public tab. Um, now, the AER's response to this is pretty interesting. I think <laughs> agree, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a hell of a deal for uh, for this mass Jeremiah guy uh, in that he's just like, it's, it's essentially a scheme where he goes bankrupt 
uh, and is essentially able to profit from it. And, you know, we, the collective, we are left, you know, holding the bag on, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of cleanup costs. And all, all of this is done with, you know, the blessing and the tacit approval of the Alberta energy regulator, because you're not allowed to buy or sell or operate an oil and gas well in this province without, you know, a license that comes from the regulator. Right. And, uh, and what was the thing that you dug up uh, in your response when you actually went to the AER for a response? What did they tell you? They told me that, well, Manitowoc, um, or sorry, Persist rather, the, the, the newer company owned by uh, Mr. Jeremia, um, they, uh, they, um, had, they had made them purchase some inactive uh, assets to pay for their decommissioning on their own in that in total they purchased like 900 in something of manitox assets yeah so they were now, they were trying to frame it as a win that they were able to force uh yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, persist to buy a handful but, of more things right but now so they purchased not more than 900 of manitox assets but they also left like 400 and something to the Orphan Well Association. So it's kind of a, uh, I don't want to uh, suggest mendacious intent on the part of the AER comms guy, but it's, it serves as a diversion from the point at hand, which is that they're leaving hundreds of wells to be picked up by the public purse, largely. It's, it is absolutely wild that, you know, an oil company goes broke, an oil company goes broke, you know, sells its profitable assets to a new company, which is owned by the same person. And then the public is left with a tab for hundreds of orphan wells to clean up, right? Like it's, it's a bankruptcy for profit scheme, which, you know, is happening with the tacit approval of the regulator. Like it is enough to make you furious at the fact that the like, and you know, this, this is must've happened like dozens of other times, right? Like if this guy feels comfortable getting away with it and he's, this is just some random, you know, small time oil and gas guy, like how often has this happened? And, and, and we just have a regulator that allows this to happen. Right. And, and, and the whole mess with orphan wells in this province is because we have a regulator that is totally captured that is, you know, unwilling to stand up to industry. And you even, you got some very juicy quotes um, from, you know, Regan Boychuk on this file, who's also been on the pod as well. And, and what, what was Regan saying about, about all of this? That happens all the time that in, at least with the small players who of course want to be big players in the oil and gas industry, that's, standard operating procedure uh, was the words he used that this is behavior that's completely normalized because as he said, the sheriff won't take his gun out of his holster. Now back to the AER's response. It's also very much worth noting that they acknowledged that they were completely aware of the fact that these two companies were owned by the same person, but they didn't consider it an issue because it isn't a threat to public safety or the environment. Um, It is, of course, as I believe Barry Robinson from EcoJustice, a lawyer, told me. um, Sorry, I just lost train of thought. (laughs) So Barry Robinson, he's the... um one of the lawyers with eco-justice and environmental law charity, you know, he, he, his question, his quote is, you know, that's the interesting question. The remaining properties that the trustee holds, which are non-productive, did the trustee get enough funds to do the cleanup on those? Or are they just going to end up in the orphan well program as well? You know, while it's completely legitimate for a bankrupt company to sell off its assets to pay off creditors, it's another matter when those assets are sold to a company owned by the same people. Um, you know, that very rough. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. But it's, it's also, uh, perhaps I didn't use this quote in the story, but it stands out to me now. Um, he said that the, oh God, I have to think of it. <laughs> Hold on, when it comes to me, I'll count down and then pick up from there. Yeah, is it in your notes or something? Oh, that he said that it, it may not be in danger to the environment or public safety, but it is a public liability. Exactly. Right. Like the idea that you yeah. can just drop the unprofitable parts of your business, of your oil and gas business onto the Orphan Well Association and just continue afresh with the parts that you do like you know, with no, ab- no fucking consequences is it gets you mad. I mean, I don't know how you can read this story and get into the details of this and even just have the broad outline of explain to you and not just be like, what the fuck it is. It is a travesty. And, um, and you know, I thank you for doing, for writing the story and getting it out into the world. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about as well is, uh, is a little thread that happened over the weekend from um, not exactly friend of the show, Jeremy Classis. I know Jeremy. I, I went to the same journalism school as him. Um, uh, our li- We have developed very parallel um, lives. But So Jeremy Classis is the, I don't know what you would call him, the editor of The Sprawl, which is a, 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 you know, an, a journalism outfit based out of Calgary. And he got he got mad online. Jeremy is a very level-headed dude. Like Jeremy is almost uh, too reasonable, I would argue. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I like him a lot. I uh, I well, I'm also working on a story for the Sprawl. Full disclosure. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, Jeremy's great, but it's like so. Over the weekend, he had a he had a thread on how he, the organization that he runs, essentially was barred from getting federal money through uh, what's called the local journalism initiative. This is the uh, the media bailout that you've heard so much about through maybe Jesse Brown or uh, Ezra Levant, if that's uh, if, if you listen to that guy. But but this is this local journalism initiative money is essentially the federal bailout money uh, for the media industry. Uh, the trouble is, however, as is kind of elucidated and threaded, we'll have it in the show notes, is that it's the newspaper industry that's responsible for administering this bailout. Sorry, I'm just going to let people, I have people in my, my entire family in the room here. This is, this is home recording, baby. What do you have something to say? Rosalind? Yeah. You're always very shy. Whenever I put a mic in your face, get out of here, go outside. I love you too. Bruce, skedaddle. Bruce is also in the room. Is that your my dog? dog? Yeah, yeah. He's Loki. Bruce is in is in the room for almost every recording of uh, of the progress report. So one other thing that I wanted to talk about with you is is Jeremy Classis, the editor of the Sprawl, which is a local journalism outfit based in Calgary, getting mad online. And and Jeremy's a very reasonable dude, very level headed dude. So when Jeremy Classis gets mad online, um, I, I definitely uh, stood up and took notice. And the thread is essentially Jeremy uh, laying out uh, how essentially he got screwed out of money from the local journalism initiative. And the local journalism initiative is essentially the fund that has been set up to um, uh, for the media bailout. Uh, this is something that the federal liberals have brought in. This is, this is money that's going to media outfits, mostly newspapers. And the trouble with this is that um, the people responsible for dispensing this money are also the newspapers and they they see jeremy as competition and so we'll have the thread in the show notes but the like uh, that's the central cole's notes of it uh, you know the canadian government is and the way they're kind of structured is is that they're funding reporter salaries for civic journalism and so i don't know did the did the medicine hat news the newspaper you used to work at or that you've been laid off or furloughed from did they apply for this did they get one of these local journalism initiative grants <laughs> uh, well, I think I can speak a bit more candidly about the Medicine Hat news than I did last time I was on here, since I'm not employed by them anymore. 
but here's what I know. And it's not a lot. Um, I mean, because there are two, there are two bailouts, right? Jeremy's referring, I believe, to the initial one from last year. Okay. Right. And, but there's also the COVID like wage subsidy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all I know with regards to the local journalism initiative at, with the Medicine Hat News is that the intention was to apply for it, but it didn't, the application didn't get sent. It was filled out, but not sent. And all I'm going to say about that is look up who owns Glacier Media, <laughs> which owns the Medicine Hat News, and look up the requirements for being eligible for these funds. And I think you can take an educated guess as to why that wasn't. But uh, again, um, this is stuff that happened presumably with head office in Vancouver and I am not privy to that information. That's all I know. Okay, fair enough. I mean, um, so so may, now your company. I mean, they they should have applied. I mean, if I was running the Medicine Hat News and I wanted free money to pay reporters uh, that the government was giving out, I definitely would have. But uh, but that 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 was the intention. We we were we were going to hire another reporter with those funds but again something happened and i don't know what but the the funds didn't get applied for but the the most kind of like now frustrating part of getting getting back to jeremy classes's thread on this is that like you know the reason given for denying jeremy funds is is essentially like they said the quiet part out loud right like the local journal this is a quote the lji the local journalism initiative is a support program for the news industry so do we not we do not want to introduce new competition into already struggling markets i mean they quite clearly see jeremy and the sprawl as his competition right and so he doesn't get any money i mean i don't think progress alberta or the progress report like uh i don't really want the money like i don't think I, I think there is real value in, in saying to your audience that like we don't we do not take money from the government. We are totally and utterly independent. Like I think it I do somewhat subscribe to the Jesse Brown theory that like this news bailout is is a pretty bad idea and that just like throwing money at shitty old newspaper organizations is like by and large a bad idea, especially when you've got, you know, Paul Godfrey making, you know, however God knows how many million dollars a year and you know still getting bonuses and all that shit while you know cutting newsrooms to the bone like i mean we've we've, we're having the same conversation in alberta right now around bailing out the oil and gas industry especially like the shittiest parts of it and it's like how do you bail out a a a fucking company that's like literally already on the bottom of the ocean (laughs) it is uh it's 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 fucked up it's messed up right and and I mean, Jeremy isn't suffering. Uh, you know, the sprawl got a forty thousand dollar U.S. dollar grant from Facebook of all organizations. Uh, yeah, and that that that's something I think we should talk about a bit because, as a result of media outlets that are, I think, the future of news, like the sprawl. Um, they can't get money from the government, so they have to go to the private sector. And I think, like a massive tech company, that is, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, driving a lot of ad revenue away from legacy media outlets. Yes, exactly. I mean, Facebook has become... And and, and I would say a lot of the arguments that uh, guys like Jesse Brown make, who who I like, and I I just don't agree with him on this issue, that if you are a news outlet getting money from the government, then you're perceived as being beholden to the government. Well, the same thing is an issue with these private arrangements, right? You're beholden to Facebook as opposed to, I mean, at the end of the day, 
regardless how journalists get their money, the more they have of it, the more they're able to do their job. But it does raise questions about who's funding um, their work. However, uh, it, the Washington Post, which is owned by Amazon, has done a lot of critical work on Amazon, mm -hmm. uh, somewhat surprisingly. So I, I personally think that the government has to do something to address the fact that all these community newspapers are being gutted by the massive companies that own them, particularly Post Media, but also Torstar. Yeah, I, I think I differ with and, you there, right? Because I, I think these companies just have to die, right? And it's not great to say, and like a lot of good people work at those outlets, but as long as the people at the money, the people at the top are still making money and these corporations still exist in whatever form, you're not going to get like sprawls, right? They're clearly, they're, they have every incentive to crush the competition and they have massive incumbency power to do so. And I mean, are they, are, are, do we believe it? I mean, I don't believe in capitalism, but do the, do the, <laughs> do the people running these organizations believe in capitalism? Because I mean, there's the, every signal the market is telling them is that like they cannot exist in the ways that they used to exist and that they must do entirely different new and different things in order to exist. And, and I just fundamentally don't believe that like the covering the news is is like a profit making enterprise like it's it's not a it's just it should be regarded as as public service it should be regarded as a nonprofit. like there's just no way i mean and progress alberta is is a nonprofit. we're incorporated as a nonprofit, and i think that model is far better for the audience and for society than like the news when when you treat the news as a commodity when the people who are at the top of these news organizations are when these are like publicly traded companies and they're getting bonuses and like all of the incentives are wrong and bad and fucked up. And that like, we totally need to reorder how the news ecosystem like works and how it makes money and depends on for money. I'm real squeamish about government kind of enabling this old model to continue because it is so broken and bad. And, um, and so that's my kind of reticence around this model kind of continuing to exist. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do agree with everything uh, you just said, and I'm conflicted. Uh, and that's probably my own bias as someone who uh, worked at, you know, an old style newspaper. 1885, baby. It's been Medicine Hat News, oldest newspaper in Alberta. Is that right? I, I, I mean, I knew it was a very old newspaper. I knew that it was that old, but I didn't realize that there weren't any older papers. Oh. But that makes sense. Well, Medicine Hat because... was like the first like like city of like white people in, in the province, I think. Yeah. In, in the, that's why actually the Monarch Theater, which is right by my apartment um, in Medicine Hat, I really hope it will be able to open after this is all done because it's really a gem but that's the first movie theater in western canada i believe the old sorry maybe perhaps not the first but the oldest there you go you know what i find particularly outrageous about the excuse uh, for, for denying jeremy this funding is that they're they're worried about competition worried about competition in calgary like how many newspapers are there in Calgary, there's an absolute corporate monoculture there. Post Media owns the entire city, basically, right? Like, who does Post Media have to fight right now? How much competition do they have right now? Well, I think we can all agree that Post Media should not get a dime of bailout money. Here, here. G given the way that the company, like, openly conducts itself. And nor should Torstar, but I think in a time like this, if if they want it, if if startup media outlets like the Sprawl could use government funding, then they should be the ones getting it. But I would also just say I would love to see, I would love to read the nationalized post. <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, just just purely for the wordplay in the name um but i mean the editorial cartoons would still be just as racist would it though 
Well, I mean, we'd have an opportunity to create it in a new image, but I mean, there's, there's, I mean, I, and it couldn't be more racist or awful. Uh, but I mean, let's, let's talk about the Herald for a second. So, um, there's a couple of things that I think are, are noteworthy and I don't want it, this to turn into an episode of big shiny takes, uh, Jeremy's <laughs> new, new podcast, uh, just quick in quick plug in the show. I mean, he's obviously going to plug it at the end. But uh, Leisha Corbella, who is just an absolute, um, you know, clown show most of the time when it comes to everything that she writes. I mean, someone who was literally a member of the UCP and voted for Jason Kenney to be leader of that party didn't disclose it to anyone, to her audience or to her bosses. And when it was finally revealed, uh, they like scrubbed a bunch of her articles off the Internet that were talking about Jason Kenney. Like Leisha Corbella is a, is a bad person with bad takes. And I'm sure if she hasn't been on Big Shiny Takes already, she soon will be. But oh, you haven't been listening. We, we did do uh, Leisha a couple weeks ago. Uh, very good. OK, I haven't listened to every episode, but Leisha Corbella. No, 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 I know people are busy and stuff. But, uh, I haven't listened to every episode of the show. Either. There you go. But but Leisha Corbella is like act- actually a fucking comrade when it comes to the like ongoing disaster at, in Alberta's meatpacking plants, you know, and there's been, you know, better reporting, you know, the CBC had a really good timeline, you know, the Globe and Mail had a really good story. Even McLean's had a, a really awesome story. Like, like journalists have kind of come and done good work on this story, but it totally unexpected to see Leisha Corbella kind of um, actually being sympathetic to labor and like working people, you know? Well, and you know, it's interesting. Meatpacking plants have always been sort of a uh, uh, a big story with like working conditions in them. If you go back to Upton St. Clair's The Jungle, I mean, that was, I, I haven't read it, uh, full disclosure, but I'm familiar <laughs> with the concept of it. And it's a expose of the meatpacking industry in the United States in the 1920s, I believe. Yeah, and an, an absolute just uh, like um, piece of canon when it comes to journalism, uh, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. In the Alberta specific sense, though, I think everyone who has lived in the southern half of the province and who, you know, interacts with working class people has a sense that um, the plants are not a great place to, to go to go work uh, and that conditions in the plants have always been pretty bad. Like, uh, I know when I got out of high school, a lot of my uh, a lot of my friends ended up going to um, the Olivelle plant. And uh, I knew some other folks who went down to work down in Brooks. And you would hear the stories. Uh, one thing that in particular that always stuck with me um, was when someone told me about how the jobs tended to get distributed in the plant down in Brooks, where um, the uh, the people of color, like the, the Somali workers and so on, they were the ones who would get sent to the kill floor, whereas the white workers were the ones who would get sent up to the production line instead. And the, the kill floor is not, not a great place to be if you care about your mental health. Like, that's where they... They bring the animals in and stun them, and, and you listen to them kind of do their weird cow scream as they bleed to death. Like, everyone knows and has always known. It's one of those secrets that everyone in Alberta has always known, that working in a meatpacking plant fucking sucks. Yeah, and which which is why it was so incredible to see Leisha actually like step up to the plate and write sympathetic stories you know, actually speaking to these workers, getting them on record, uh, you know, presenting a, an unflattering portrait of what it is like to work for Cargill, what it is like to work for JBS. Um, I mean, she she followed it up with some other absolute dog shit pieces um, recently, but I uh, just wanted to note uh, that Leisha Corbella, uh, not actually awful in this one case. A, a lot of these professional reactionaries have that one issue where they mysteriously develop human compassion, I've, I've noticed. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it allows you it to... Me? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, yeah, like, I don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But yeah, it, it is a very, like, you know, convenient way for, for liberals and conservatives to, to, you know, demonstrate that they're not total monsters and not total bootlickers. You've got two groups, I think, 
in these um, in these kind of conservative commentator types, right? You have people who uh, have sworn their fealty to the movement and like the you know the the party, the political establishment, and so on. And then you have people who are more just loyal to their class. And I, I think I would um, assume I've never met Misha, but I would assume that she's more of the latter, right? She's she's wealthy and she has the politics of a wealthy person, but she's not, uh, you know, she's not like a Ben Shapiro kind of any no type figure. So every once in a while, her humanity is going to peek through. Leisha Corbella destroys Jason Kenny on meat plant conditions. <laughs> Destroyed with facts and logic. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, but no, she's not. She like I would agree that she's not as odious a figure as some of her contemporaries in the post media echo chamber. Even her, some of her contemporaries at the Herald. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I'm and, trying to th- and and to, to to just jump right into the next thing. I mean, the the Calgary Herald did publish something absolutely psychopathic on this exact same story on what's going on oh with the, the yeah. they sure did. And the the headline here is, uh, I mean, you can kind of guess what's in the story from the headline because it's it's pretty clear. But headline: uh, Meat plant disruptions cast long shadow as summer barbecue season heats up. And the story goes on to, um, you know, talk about how the, the the plants that typically process most of Canada's beef are um, running slower, and there's been delays because uh, obviously, if you haven't heard, COVID nineteen shut down the cargo plant for quite some for two weeks, uh, and they've come back, but the production is is nowhere near as fast uh, as it was before, and the JBS plant is, which is the other large plant in Brooks, uh, is also running at kind of half speed. They're down to they're down to one shift, and. Uh, and um, what around fifteen hundred workers have been infected with COVID COVID nineteen, uh, with many more kind of infections of COVID nineteen kind of spreading out into the community. The Cargill plant, I think, is the single largest f- single facility outbreak in North America. Uh, uh, four people have died due to these outbreaks in these meatpacking facilities, and the story does not mention that at all. Instead, yeah. Instead, the story talks. The story talks about the beef industry. It talks about how the difficulty grocers are having sourcing local beef. Like it's just absolutely, just like murderous capitalism, like on display. It's a luxury too. Uh, beef is, I mean, aside from maybe the last like thirty or forty years in North America, uh, it's something that you would look at as a treat, right? Like. This lifestyle that we live these days, where you have meat at every single meal, and not just cheap meat either, but like nice, nice cuts of beef, like we're we're really indulging. We're we're, we're really living kind of a richy rich lifestyle up here, and I right people don't have that perspective. They don't they don't realize that for uh, almost the entirety of like human civilization, people were not having meat three meals a day, and certainly not. Um, you know, like expensive cuts of beef, it's not going to fucking kill you to have lentils for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. It, it, precisely. And I think my uh, friend and colleague, Mo Cranker, will be uh, quite proud of me for making this observation. But you don't need to eat meat. Like, that is an option, uh, especially today. Like, like eating, like it's a luxury. And look, I like eating meat. Like, I'm not a vegetarian, though I'm somewhat sympathetic to arguments made in favor of abstaining from meat wholly. But the, this freak out that what does this uh, slowdown of meat production mean for consumers? without a single mention of any of the workers who've died is completely abhorrent. I mean, they could have mentioned it at least once in the story, but then of course it would expose what a God awful atrocious angle that this story is promoting. 
yeah, it's it's pitching to people's entitlement. This uh, this entitlement that you always deserve to have a nice big piece of meat in front of you every single meal. And think of like even in the past what six to twelve months, there have been similar kind of political freakouts about meat. Was it uh, a few months back? Was it um, was it Greta? Greta suggested people eat just like a little bit less meat, and Premier Kenny was beating her up on Twitter. About oh, there's multiple. Well, this I happens. Don't... This happens like every few years, which is that a politician or a public figure in Alberta or who's connected to Alberta talks about uh, being vegetarian or eating less meat. Like it's happened to Katie Lang. It happened to Shannon Phillips, uh, and, and and the entire like. Uh, Orthodox, like Alberta Orthodoxy, like Cattlemen Association, feedlot operator, I love Alberta beef, beef lobby, like crashes down on you, and you're you become a an, like an instant pariah in Alberta. But this is this is an awful uh, piece of reporting for sure. But I lay the blame wholly at management at the Calgary Herald. Uh, I think it's kind of obvious at Post Media Papers now when. <laughs> the whip comes down from upper management that they need to fall in line behind the conservative party and industry lobby groups, especially with columns. But right. This is a piece of reporting that I suspect was imposed. Well, these are Um, largely editor driven papers now, right? Like the editors have stuck around any reporter worth a damn or that's any good at their job has moved on to a better uh, you know, working situation, right? We've seen that in Edmonton. Well, I wouldn't say any. They, they've, there's, there are a few good reporters at the Herald and Journal for sure. A lot of the ones but, that are left, a lot of the ones currently working are like younger, earlier career. Like the columnists and the editors are the ones that stick around. The reporters are have like a half life of like two years, two and a half years, right? And and when that happens, yeah. you get situations like this where it's like, hey, go write a story about. Um, you know how people are going to be sad that they're not going to get beef on Mother's Day or Father's Day, uh, and and without without mentioning the fact that uh, workers are dying, so that like um, so you might not be able to get the like steak you want at the price you want this year. I mean, it could have been worse. They could have straight up pinned it on the workers in this article. Uh, I would not be surprised to see a Herald piece along the lines of uh, you know. You don't get ribs this summer, and it's because those damn Filipinos didn't wash their hands. But isn't it, to work together? Isn't that the subtext of this? Isn't that what readers are supposed to take away from it? A little, yeah. I, w- I would, I would agree. You could make that argument. Yeah. I mean, the final paragraph is just like absolute psycho shit. So it's like they're they're quoting some like grocery store beef analyst. I don't know how you get that job, but it's like. Here it is, quote, this weekend is the start of the barbecue season and Mother's Day weekend is usually a huge weekend for beef. Then you've got Father's Day coming up and the Canada Day weekend and the August Civic holiday. But I think all of these big beef days are going to be flops this year. End quote. That is the last paragraph in that story. The Civic holiday is a big beef day. Beef analyst sounds like a Tim and Eric bit. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, I mean, COVID-19 is not the only infectious disease that will ever exist in the world, uh, these meatpacking plants are going to end up in this exact same situation within another, what, two to four years, probably. I mean, uh, it's already happened before. Uh, We kind of got lucky with the last couple of bugs and they weren't as bad as, as COVID, but like the conditions in this entire industry need to change and not just for the protection of the workers, I'm pretty sure that these corporations don't want to have to shut down production for you know two to four weeks every time uh, some some kind of infectious disease is going around. But that's the new normal. Uh, like that industry is going to have to change. And if people want to have access to their beef on all of their big beef holidays, then they also should be advocating for this industry to change in, in a very significant way. Well, well, Jim, you said uh, three years or so um, before this happens again, but I would say it's going to be a matter of a few months because we all know there's going to be a second wave of COVID because Donald Trump has decided the economy needs to reopen. And when the United States does that, at least now, the rest of the world, particularly Canada, 
needs to fall in line uh, because otherwise their industry will get destroyed because we're so dependent upon uh, trade with the US. So uh, yeah, maybe NAFTA, not such a good idea after all. I mean, I'm not a virologist, but everything that I've read suggests that yes, there is going to be a, a big second wave of COVID in the fall, uh, regardless of what the Americans do really, uh, just given that the virus um, it does very well, transmits very easily in cold, damp conditions. So when the summer is over, uh, the virus is, is um, going to get another second chance. Yeah, and just one final bit of, of comment on this before we kind of move on to the next one, which is um, Paula Simons, uh, now Senator Paula Simons, breaking the news that uh, 21 Alberta-based food inspectors um, got infected with COVID-19. Of those 21, 18 uh, came from the Cargill plant. And so uh, that's like, I mean, it bears out. There's like 37 inspectors that work that plant. 18 got infected. So like literally half, like almost exactly how many of the workers got infected. But like, Jesus Christ, like shut it down. Like you're a food, you have the ability to shut it down as a food inspector. I mean, that just broke like today, earlier today. But Jeremy, any final uh, comments on this before we wrap up our our uh, psycho Calgary Herald story on uh on Alberta beef. It's bad. Um, newspaper editors do better. Don't dump awful stories on your reporters. Um, and yeah. Um, burn post media to the ground. Yes. Post media. Must I be think destroyed. that's, that, that, that's my conclusion. Post media must be destroyed. I do post that every few months. Okay, this the final part of the program, we're, we're going to be kind of be going back to the original, the, the very first thing, which is that if you've been paying attention to what we do with the progress report, uh, and you may have noticed the fact that we are producing more and more original content, original news, original reporting. You know, we hired Jeremy to look into this Manitoc energy story of, of you know, some, some oil and gas executive using the Orphan Well Association as a recycling depot, going bankrupt for profit. And, you know, I was just recently down in southern Alberta reporting on the situation at uh, the cargo plant in High River and the JBS plant in Brooks and, you know, speaking to workers. And we're working on another podcast on this as well, where we actually have, you know, spoke to the workers who are still, you know, incredibly, you know, scared and concerned about what's going on in their plant. And, and, uh, and, and so that is something that we're doing more of. And this was this is part of a pivot at Progress Alberta where we are we're pivoting to becoming more we've always been like a media and advocacy organization, but I now we're much more we're pivoting to becoming much more of a media organization. And that's kind of come about for kind of a couple reasons. You know, one of which is that like Jason Kenney was going to introduce a bill in it was it going to be in the spring session and it's been delayed because of COVID. But he was going to introduce a bill in, in this spring session, essentially targeted at us and organizations like us who raise money from organized labor and do campaign work. And so Jason Kenney was going to make that illegal or incredibly difficult to do so. And that's part of the work that we do. That's part of how we raise our money so that we can continue to exist and pay the bills and you know pay mine and Jim's salary. And it was going to be... Uh, it looks like it was going to be hard for us to do that, or it would have been illegal, or there would have been some long-ass legal fight. It's very likely that this bill that Jason Kenney is introducing is, is unconstitutional. Unions are democratically run organizations, and uh, when the union decides on what to do with its, with its money, that's what it does with its money. And uh, if you don't like it, like you can always run for president. Um, uh, unions are not a la carte. You don't get to pick the, the parts of the union that you want to apply to you or not. Uh, and that's like Rand formula stuff that's been like jurisprudence for God knows how many years. But likely, unconstitutional likely would have failed, but it wouldn't have mattered because in the immediate term, we would have been unable, unable to operate. And then also, or unable to raise money from those groups. And then also when you look at um, just the skill sets of, of Jim and I, and, and you know, Progress Alberta has been around four and a half years now. Uh, when you look at the things that we are good at, the things that we want to do, the things that have the most impact, I think we've realized that we're much better at investigative journalism, news and analysis, you know, digging into the stuff that rich and powerful people don't want us to be digging into. And, uh, and that's, that's the other big thing. I mean, I, we've tried to do organizing. We've done 
um, campaign work and organizing work. And it is, it's honestly, it's, it's hard. It's hard ass fucking work. And, you know, kudos to all the like organizers who are better at it than us out there doing it because um, it's, it's really fucking hard. And it's also really hard to get people to pay you to do it. And so, I, yeah, I think the, the goal here is to transition, you know, Progress Alberta to a media organization. And one, and part of that process of pivoting to becoming a full-time media organization is having this conversation, right? And, and talking about, you know, what holes are we going to be filling in, you know, the Alberta discourse? What are our values? What are the things that we are going to concentrate on? And I think that's where it's time to talk about our, our, our progress report manifesto. Um, you know, I don't think people are writing enough manifestos these days. So we, we definitely wanted to jump into that ring. And um, I kind of wanted, I, I want it to be an, a conversation between like you who is taking the time to listen to this, who cares about this sort of thing, who's clearly, you know, 40 minutes into a podcast, um, you know, from us at, at Progress Alberta uh, and, and wants to see us succeed and wants to see this type of project succeed. And so I'm going to kind of run through kind of a very first, like a first draft of this manifesto. And I want to get, you know, reaction from, from Jim and Jeremy. So very first thing, you know, Progress Report is an independent online media platform focused on reporting and analysis concerning Alberta politics. I think that's pretty easy and makes sense, right? Right, right Jeremy? Yeah, checks out. Um, Progress Alberta is funded by its audience, is free of ads, and is beholden to no other organization. So again, kind of taking the, the Jesse Brown, Canada Land model, the sprawl model, uh, and applying it to the to how we raise money, how we kind of bring money into the organization. You know, I, I just don't think you can. Yeah. I just don't think you can. And be, I mean, Canada Land also does ads. I just don't think, given our politics and the stuff that we talk about, that there's advertisers interested in it. Nor do I think our audience is large enough. Nor do I really want to like to take the time to actually engage advertisers and do it. Nor do I really want their money. You know. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. Well. As, as I suggested earlier, it seems to me that the future of media is uh, outlets like The Sprawl and Candleland and APTN, which are funded by support. Rank and File uh, is another one that are funded by people who actually care about the journalism and aren't just seeking to make a buck off of it. Exactly. Um, and I just don't think it would, like, if we started reading out mattress ads, it, I, I just think everyone would walk away. <laughs> Let me tell you about Rage, Shadow Legends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, point number three. Um, you know, the progress report will publish regularly, but not necessarily on a set schedule, you know, because we don't have a paper product to feed. Like, it's not necessary that we, like, always publish. Um, but we will always have at least one podcast and one newsletter a week. Um, but as far as our other stories, it's kind of going to, going to depend on what it is we're working on and, and that type of thing. But like that, and that's kind of somewhat similar to Canada land, which like, you know, they do a couple podcasts every week, but their actual like original stories are come out when they come out. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that, uh, Candleland has been doing some of the best journalism in the country, um, despite what, um, you know, reservations uh, people may have with particular projects. Like I know Oppo is the one people love to hate. And uh, well, and Jesse I Brown, actually haven't listened to it. And Jesse Brown's like shitty politics too. I mean, it's. Uh, yeah, but he's like, he's good, right? Like when you're a good journalist, in my view, it doesn't matter really what you're, I mean, to an extent, if you're like. But he's not just a journalist. He's like, he's sure. Like he is an actual, like he, he, he has created and he owns the platform itself. He's not just producing content, you know? Yeah. And that's, and that's when the politics matters more. And yeah, like I'll never give any organization any money that has Jen Gerson on the payroll, but that's just me. You know what? Like, like Jen, I obviously don't agree with her politics. Um, and she has a lot of bad takes, but I've always had like, I guess somewhat, an affinity uh, for her work um, from back when she was on in, writing for the National Post. I think maybe just by comparison, she was very um, level-headed. 
Um, but then she wrote a piece for Quilla after she got laid off from the National Post. And I was like, ugh. Yikes. Okay. Uh, point number whatever. <laughs> <is> five. <laughs> um, you know, we're not seeking to find balance. You know, we're, we're not here for a debate. You know, our objective is to, you know, amplify, educate, motivate our fellow workers. You know, we are not partisan, but we are absolutely a political organization. Um, you know, oh, go ahead, Jim. I mean, this is something that is technically true for uh, nearly every news organization in Canada, that they are political. Um, some of them are uh, partisan, avowedly partisan. I mean, Post Media is, um, the, the, the receipts are there. The paper trail is long. Uh, they are absolutely in bed with the conservative political parties. But uh, anyone who writes and publishes content is political uh, they should just admit it mm -hmm. and and i think that often people conflate non-partisanship meaning not supporting a particular political party or not with not having an opinion or not having a world view or a frame of analysis and that's a very important distinction to make. You know, we are going to aspire, uh, you know, we want our work to be anti-racist, anti-colonial, anti-fascist, anti-patriarchal, anti-heteronormative. And in pursuit of the goal to be all those things, you know, we are going to be platforming and giving voice to, you know, folks who are marginalized by those systems. We are also uh, creating a, a readable and approachable mass media here we want this think of this as like a calgary sun or an edmonton sun but good um we want a mass audience we want it to be easy easily easily understandable and you know the intendant's audience here is like people who work for a living people who work for an hourly wage like when you look at what the sun has been able to do um you know it really is incredible right like they've created this product that like you know you can find in almost any lunchroom of any kind of like you know, business that has workers lying around, around, and people pick it up and read it. And it is an incredible, like, way that the conservative movement has, has kind of, like, inserted themselves into the lives of working people. Because, I mean, the, if, if they're just reading sports, great. I mean, if they maybe just look at the Sunshine Girl or the headlines on the front page. But, like, if they actually read the, like, op-ed shit, like, it is, like, just super toxic, awful, nasty shit they're smuggling in. Uh, into this paper and and so like we want to do that but obviously like good ideas <laughs> exactly i think that the left uh there there are things the left can learn from post media uh in terms of having this national or in our case provincial hub for uh, progressive takes just as post media has um, done for the right. Uh, but obviously their business model and politics are something that should be disposed of. Exactly. Uh, we want to write about things that are immediately relevant to people's lives rather than big abstract concepts. So, you know, stories about landlords raising rents during COVID-19, for instance, rather than essays about political theory. On this end, we do want to, I mean, we still want to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Um, and I think there's lots of like great organizations doing, you know, work on political theory and who talk about those, like the Alberta advantage is a fantastic podcast, which if you don't listen to, you should listen to it. But I don't think that's the space that we're trying to fill. Um, I, I think we're very much more of a, like, you know, a gutter press for the left. Um, progress report is also, or progress report is also going to be doing media criticism. This is something we've done since, you know, we've begun but i mean when you look at alberta's media ecosystem and how deeply fucked up it is you know because post media pulls everybody to the right and because of post media's overt hostility to you know labor and climate action and indigenous sovereignty that um you know that like media criticism is part of what the progress report has to do uh another part of what we will ask you to do is we will ask you for money um if we're going to be reader funded 
um, you are at least three or four times a year, there's going to be, you know, direct asks for money. There's probably going to be campaigns related to specific projects or stories that we want to tell that we're going to ask you where, where we're going to ask you for money. But like part of the process of being reader supported means uh, if you're not giving us money, we're going to, and you listen to our stuff, you're going to hear it. And, um, you know, when I started Progress Alberta, I was not an expert fundraiser. I definitely was very anxious about asking for money. Um, but it's something you get over over time as you run an organization where no one is obligated to give you money and you've got to go out and pitch it all the time. And if you ever wanted to be cured of like, oh, what if I'm asking for people like I was I was on the Bernie email list and like twice a day that Bernie email list was getting asked for money, sometimes three times a day. And you don't get what you don't ask for. So um, if, if you like us, you listen to us uh, on a regular basis there are going to be calls for money. Frankly, Mr. Shankly, give us money. <laughs> and finally, um, you know, we will cover the excesses, the failures, the mistakes, the fuck ups of politicians, you know, lawyers, cops, corporate executives, and other members of the elite. Like I think framing this as a, as a populist project, as an anti-elite project is, you know, absolutely key. And, and one of the reasons why, um, you know, the sun is successful. Right. And, and, and that means bad actors on, you know, ostensibly like the left as well. And so we, we do have to be able, I mean, part of the, one of the things is that if we are going to be reader supported is that, and we are going to be independent is that we do have to create, we do have to have that credibility that we are able to go after, you know, the stuff that's bad on our own end. So I think that's that's the fi- kind of final bit of the manifesto. This is obviously still very much a work in progress. We're still, Jim and I are still figuring out, um, you know, what what this organization is going to look like, what its values are going to be, how we are going to present those to our audience and our supporters. But that's a kind of like intro to the progress report manifesto that we're working on. So thanks so much for coming on the pod, Jeremy. I think we're going to leave it there. Now is the time to kind of plug your pluggables. How can people follow you? You know, what's the podcast that you're working on? I know you've recently joined the ranks of podcasters. Um, You know, now is the time to kind of like let people know how to follow you and what you're all about, what you're up to. Yeah, I host two podcasts, actually. Both, I think, would be of interest to your listeners. The First being uh, Big Shiny Takes, which you mentioned before, where we take the worst takes in Canadian media and also non-Canadian media sometimes and subject them to harsh criticism and ridicule. The second podcast is The Forgotten Corner, which I host with a guy you may know named Scott Schmidt. Um, the Newsboys news um, have got their own podcast. Yes, that's right. And um, unlike myself, he still works at the Medicine Hat News, but we're doing a lot of long-form interviews. Um, we're actually recording tomorrow with Kim Stiver. Is that Or Stever? Stever? From Lethbridge? Yeah. yeah. Stever. Yeah. Um, and that should be a great uh, discussion. He's been absolutely crushing it since the pandemic started uh, by just doing independent journalism that you should all check out if you haven't already. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Appel 1025. And yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show, Duncan and Jim. Always a pleasure. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, we love having you on. Again, once you get your third time, like we'll send you some swag, maybe a t-shirt or something. Who's who is the uh, progress Al- progress report reigning champ? I don't know. I think I think it, I think we have a couple people at two. I don't think anyone has gotten to three yet. I know Bashir's been on a couple times. I know you're at two now. Um, there might be someone I'm missing, but I think that's that's it. I mean, we've only got like thirty six. This is our thirty six, thirty seventh episode. All right, Bashir, I'm coming for you. There you go. No, I'm just <laughs> I love Bashir. He's awesome. Uh, definitely check out his work at Progress Alberta. Yeah, yeah, we had him. He wrote an op-ed for us on the um, on the disaster and the meatpacking plants as well. Um, yeah, and folks, um, if you like this podcast, if you want to keep hearing this podcast, there are a few things, quick and easy things you can do to make sure that we continue. One very easy you know like us on facebook share our stuff with your friends word of mouth is actually the most important way we don't spend money on advertising uh so 
if you want this project to spread, you do have to kind of promote us to your friends and family. We really do appreciate it. If you really like this podcast, and again, I, I did talk about this earlier, you can give us money. It's really easy to give us money. Uh, you go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. You put in your credit card, you become a monthly donor, you know, 5, 10, 15. Someone just uh, signed up for $50 a month the other day. Uh, whatever you're able to afford, obviously, because it is kind of a fucked up time economically. But uh, theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. And uh, that's the kind of e- easiest way to support us financially. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I uh, need to hear, I am on Twitter at Duncan Kinney. And you can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Fami Communist for the amazing theme. Thank you to Jim, producer Jim, as well as our guest Jeremy for appearing on the show. And thank you for listening and goodbye. Did you know that Progress Alberta is part of a national community of leftist podcasts on the Ricochet Podcast Network? You can find the Alberta Advantage, 49th Parahel, Kino Lefter, Well Reds, The Progress Report, Les Ficelles, Out of Left Field, and Unpacking the News, as well as a bunch of other awesome podcasts at Ricochet Media or wherever you download your podcasts.